Welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, I'm not on the programme, so I'll introduce myself very quickly. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm the uh, programme director for the Institute's work on better policy making. If you're not aware of it, we've got some flyers outside telling you about all the fun stuff that we're doing. And in that role, we work quite often with LSE, LSE Impact, because we're very interested in this issue of the connection between academia, evidence, and policy making. Um, I'm not going to say very much more. We've got an excellent panel. Uh, all the detailed bios are in your leaflet, so I'm not going to do long introductions, um, but we're going to go in order as scheduled. So that's Adam from DEC, Jonathan, currently at NISA, but actually I think he's going to talk more in his government role. He was Chief Economist at the Cabinet Office and Head of Analysis at uh, the Department of Work and Pensions. Ben Silverman from the Home Office. And finally, to give a slightly different perspective, we've got Neil Hooley from uh, Westminster City Council, which is my own council, so I'll listen to that with particular interest uh, about how they find out what I want or what I'm thinking. They're going to talk for about five minutes each. I'm going to be ruthless. I have a mandate from Jane for ruthlessness um, so that we can allow a lot of time for questions, answers, comments, etc. So without further ado, Adam, you can either stay seated, you can rise to the lectern, but five minutes starting now. Try to stay seated and be more relaxed and I'm one the head of social science engagement at the Department of Energy and uh, Climate Change, and it's a uh, post, uh, I think, um, certainly in the social research community in government, uh, the first of its kind. Um, I guess I should probably contextualise myself a little bit in terms of the panel. You know, I operate at a kind of mid managerial level rather than at the sort of the top end um, or, or anywhere else uh, in, the, in the spectrum. And my, my job is, is, is specifically to work with the external social science uh, community to help provide a kind of doorway, if you like, or a window, whatever kind of building metaphor you like, um, that enables the external research community to engage more intelligently with the, with the internal policy making and, uh, and strategy development. Particularly. So um, it's, it's less about the kind of macro level of kind of commissioning big projects or research centres that, that were mentioned earlier. It's much more about the micro level of kind of specific knowledge that particular people have um, and, and engaging that at particular points in the policy process. Um, now, the way I work, about, work, work with that is to sort of think about two preconditions necessary uh, for making that happen, uh, function um, effectively. The first is, um, as, as I noted earlier, knowing who is doing what um, is absolutely critical, of course, and for me, who in the research community is doing what's out there, and understanding, really understanding deeply how the research applies to what we're thinking about uh, internally in our panel at the moment. And the other side is the other way around. It's making deck, the internal workings of deck, if you like, transparent, um, just kind of explaining how and why we do things, uh, and what's on our mind, if you like, to the external community, so they can apply um, their research thinking much more directly to what uh, we're, we're worried about. Now, the way I sort of frame the problem, um, it's kind of in a fundamental way, is that essentially we're talking about two particular perspectives on reality. So reality is this huge, massive thing, like a big ocean, of course, and perspectives are these little ships floating around, the idea is how you actually bring them together um, so they don't crash into each other, but you get this kind of sensible interchange. Um, and, and in my mind, I mean, I'm not a mariner of any sort, I'm really sailing, but I think timing is everything um, in this kind of thing. And to get the timing right, you need to get the information right, as I talked about, and dedicated personnel, that's my kind of pitch. So this is what we're doing uh, in deck. Um, I'm starting start off by mapping the research sector, seeing who's doing what, and getting that into, a, into an IT framework, as mentioned before, about how how, how digital data is, is making new things possible. And, and to make that available, linked into what policy streams are going on internally, so instantly people can see who's doing what. And that's building 
in, in the energy sector along the lines of what the UK Energy Research um, uh, uh, Council are doing. And in future, that will expand out into universities. But also communicating outwards. So with DEFRA, we've generated and created a new social science expert panel. So that's a group, a kind of hub, a central hub. It's other forms of networking, um, less virtual in some sense, and more direct and more interchange. Um, and, and the principal components of that are around translating research policy, which is kind of what we started off in that seeing about how the research, really thinking sort of how does this research actually really apply to the problem that we're facing right now? But also the converse of that. How does policy, translating policy for research, what's the, what's the kind of big question here that actually we can, we can go outside of the energy sector and think and think and see what kind of research has been going on? A good example of that's been around the Green Deal and incentives and looking at maybe trying to find economic or behavioral economics research around the impacts of, of uncertainty on, on, on uh, of incentives on people. So to make, really make this work, you kind of need people like me, sort of social scientists, trained scientists, to understand who can read the research. I'm not really, I'm not really one of these who thinks that it's about, about, about the, the, the communication in terms of the writing style or anything like that. I think that's such a big problem. It's more about having trained people internally who can read and translate the technical research, but who are also policy analysts, who also know what's going on internally, who can steer, intervene, and translate um, in a very kind of um, very quick, rapid sort of way. Uh, what's going on externally into something that's relevant and internal. So, to my mind, it's, it's this active kind of engagement with the research community for policy that enables a much better conversation and therefore greater impact of academic research and policy. Excellent. Um, just a very quick question, Adam. Has it meant you've actually commissioned less new research because you're there able to bring in what's going on already? Um, not yet, because I only started in October. But there's certainly opportunities for that. I can, just, I can see clearly already had I been embedded in it earlier. So linking to a bit of Patrick's austerity theme. Okay, that's excellent, and I think setting a very excellent precedent in terms of pace and focus. So over to Jonathan. Okay, um, before I start, I'll, I'll just, I think, disagree with the last point, that actually you guys don't need to worry about translating what you say into English because there'll be good pol- policy analysts in government who will do that for you and pass that on to the right policy people. Um, in my experience, that doesn't happen. And going back to what Patrick says... Um, some, this is something where I think blogs do have a crucial role to play. Um, I think I've had you know, uh, uh, um, my blog um, by trying to translate some of the research into English and sending it direct to policymakers has, as far as I can tell, had rather more influence than most of the sort of more academic papers that, that we've produced worthy as they've been in, in uh, research terms. Um, so briefly, my experience as a civil servant, I'll pick out a couple of episodes where I think um, there was a reasonably good interaction between research and, and policy. Um, so at the Department for Work and Pensions on labour markets, I think there were sort of two ways in which the interaction worked well. One was the role of research in sort of framing the broad narrative um, and uh, the way which we thought about the labour market. And uh, um, LSE in particular, the sort of... Uh, uh, um, Nicol, Layard, Jack framework for thinking about the labour market was hugely influential in the thinking of uh, both the last uh, last few years of the major government and then all through the the first few years of the labour government in terms of rethinking about how we thought about the labour market and how policy should work. So I think that was was very productive. And then similarly, at a more micro level, uh, the uh, interaction between uh, uh, policy 
research and analysis at DWP and people outside working on the um, evaluation of labor market programs. Again, that was very influential on the, the, the micro detail of how those programs were, uh, were designed, uh, implemented, and evaluated. Um, then uh, um, later, at a more, much more macro level, when I was at the Cabinet Office during the financial crisis, um, there was really a, um, which a, a department and a subject where normally there was no interaction whatsoever with academics. The idea that the, the Prime Minister would talk to academics about uh, actual economic ideas as opposed to inviting them in for you know, uh, uh, receptions was, was unprecedented. But during the financial crisis, it did actually happen. Um, and it's a matter of great pride for me that I was partly instrumental in getting academics in and making what I thought were broadly the right decisions during the crisis. Equally, it's a matter of great regret to me that since then, that moment of consensus has, was, has uh, disappeared and we're now back to um, macroeconomists in particular squabbling about the right way forward with the result that politicians feel free to uh, ignore them and basically... Uh, um, do, do the wrong thing and, and for anyone who hasn't uh, um, seen it yet uh, there is an absolutely excellent sort of sociology of the rise and fall of Keynesianism during this crisis by uh, um, John Quiggan and Henry Farrell an economist and political scientist uh, that is uh, beginning now to circulate as a working paper and for uh, a discussion of how I'd outside um, Academics and researchers can influence really important decisions, um, both in the right ways and the wrong ways. I heartily recommend that, that you read it. And I'll stop there, I think. Okay, and do you want to just plug your blog since Patrick um, plugged the LSE one? My blog is. Oh, oh yes, I was going to say something about, about the LSE. My blog is called Not the Treasury View. Um, please read it. Um, it focuses both on macro policy but also on. Um, micro, and in particular trying to work out where, not so much what the right policy is, but identify areas where uh, the government has misused the data and the evidence, which sadly is something which is becoming all too frequent, and I regard my personal mission to expedite. But I would point to, to LSE, uh, one, I mean, uh, many of you no doubt will have read the uh, exchange about the evidence about uh, competition in the health, uh, in the health sector uh, um, between uh, um, uh, uh, Julian Glover uh, um, and, and Zach Cooper on the one hand and what's her um, Alison Pollock on the other. I have to say I thought that was quite unedifying um, uh, and not particularly helpful to people in government or indeed to informed individuals trying to make up their mind about the health bill. In contrast to John Van Rienen's uh, um, article in today's Guardian, I'm not sure it's the print edition but certainly online, uh, which I thought was a very crisp, short, clear summary, it's a point of view that I happen to agree with, so maybe I'm prejudiced, but I thought it was clear and evidence-based uh, um, and a useful contribution to the debate. Okay, excellent. Um, thank you very much for asking me. Um, I, I mean, I suppose that the way in which the Home Office interacts with um, academia is, is quite multifaceted, and I think what I want to talk about for a few minutes is something that people don't perhaps think about as much as they might, which is the advisory committees that we have. Um, we've got a number of um, very important advisory committees, uh, particularly the, the, MAC, the Migration Advisory Committee and the, um, what's probably the, the highest profile advisory in government, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. 
and uh, both of these have substantial input, um, both on the committees themselves and in the subgroups on, uh, from um, academics, um, and particularly academics in the social sciences. So as you know, the MAC has recently produced a report on the displacement effects of, um, of, of migrants on the employment market, which I expect uh, my colleague knows more about than I do. Um, I wrote a blog may, about it. He may, <laughs> that's right, exactly. Um, and um, it's on the blog. And um, so that's a, that's a very clear example. And we also have the Forensic Science Advisory Council, the, um, the Ethics um, Committee for the, non, the uh, National DNA Database, and the Animal uh, Procedures Committee. So it's a very varied landscape, and all of these areas have serious social science uh, input. Um, so really that's just to give us, I, I'd rather be asked, answering questions that you may ask. Um, I think it is the case, undoubtedly, that there's enormous downward pressure on uh, research spend by government. Um, certainly, I've only been in government two years this week, and I've seen it in my time. And so what we have to do is to get creative ways of making sure that the impact of what people think is really felt in, in the best way. And finally, a statistical point. Um, it's probably the case that more than 20% of the ref money will be distributed or to impact mm. because of the non-linearity of the algorithms and the way in which committees work. And so um, you can work that up yourselves. But roughly speaking, if you have N publications, each of which is uh, assessed independently, then you have one lump of money for impact the variability of the impact could be much bigger, and I suspect, as it was the case with the environment and the um, the, the two non-publication-based um, things in the RAE, their actual their actual influence on the amount of money was actually more than the amount that, that, that they contributed to the overall weighting. And if you could explain that comprehensively to someone at FDA, because <laughs> I tried to work. And the only way to get really in 20% is to slice 20% off as a cake and give that out separately. Okay, we might come back to that later, she said, while everybody's trying to work that one out. And I'm going to go down to the other end, from the top of the Home Office down to the streets of Westminster. Down to the streets of Westminster. I was, I was going to say, it's getting shorter and shorter, the presentation. So, 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 but I feel like I, I want to... Um, 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 perhaps a bit more expansive, because I think one of the key things about local government, from my perspective, is the huge range of diversity in terms of different organisations, different things going on. Often we get clumped together as kind of, you know, you're dealing with government and then there's sort of local government, which, uh, you know, there's the, we're, we're a junior partner in many respects. And I think also, from my perspective, um, I'm very flattered to be here and, and talk in terms of sort of academic research, but I'm a market researcher. And I think, you know, although I had delusions of grandeur when I was at university to continue uh, in academia, uh, academia, I, you know, went into commercial market research. And I think one of the things I would categorise is perhaps to think of it in terms of the way in which market research is used, perhaps sort of the, the way in which the tabloid press is in relation to sort of the broadsheets. So if you're all sort of broadsheets and very learned and writing great articles, I'm sort of the tabloid journalist going out there, perhaps with slightly dodgy methods in terms of what you might be thinking I'm up to, 
you know, I might be doing things with sort of random probability sampling, which would, you know, make your hair curl. But I, you know, try and impart it. And I think one of the key things about that kind of more tabloid approach to think about is the way in which the decision makers within a local authority are really trying to get some very clear messages out of what people are, are telling them. And so uh, uh, I just really want to cover uh, three uh, main points, but really to give an incentive, first of all, to say this kind of great diversity in terms of local government is really ripe in terms of the experimentation, the way in which different communities, different types of politics, different types of decisions can really make a difference in the local level. I mean, at central government, we've just started to get into coalitions, but actually at a local level, there's a huge diversity of different types of coalitions that are going on in terms of not just between different types of authorities, but within authorities themselves. So there's this great uh, uh, ability to do this. And within each local authority, there is a research team. It may be a great research team with lots of um, um, wonderful data, demographic data, public opinion data, or it may be, you know, half a person whose, you know, main role is to do something else. But there are people there and they will be wanting uh, to hear from academics in terms of what uh, they can do with their data and also to enable you uh, to do uh, uh, academic experiments uh, as far as ethics will allow uh, on the local population. So I think there's just three things that I just want to draw in terms of how I think sort of academics and, and, and local government could, could work better. I think the first is to sort of tackle the image problem. And I think it is an image problem in terms of academia, uh, from my perspective. In my uh, unscientific uh, focus group amongst uh, people around my desk, when I ask them, sort of, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think academics are? You know, well, they're expensive, they're very slow, scary. You know, who wants to bring in some experts to tell you that perhaps, you know, your decision-making isn't that um, 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 scientifically sound? But probably the most important thing is in terms of thinking about, you know, whether academic research is being inconclusive, indecisive, sort of sitting on the fence. I know some of you are sort of sitting there going, well, you know, sometimes on the fence, sometimes you're not. But, you know, the key point, <laughs> key point is that if you don't make a decision, if you're not there and giving confidence in your findings, this is my job, to go and stand in front of senior decision makers and say, right, I've looked at the research evidence, and this, with confidence, is what I think the picture is. And if you don't make that confident pitch, then the decision still has to be made. And if that decision is made despite the research, then what's the point of the research in the first place? I think the second point is, to be honest, whatever you're doing in terms of academic research, just say you're, just say you're doing a nudge. Just say it relates to nudge. You know, no one's actually read the book. You can redefine it in any way you want. You could say nudge. You could say beyond nudge. You could say whatever you want. But in terms of decision-makers, what they're really looking for in local government is they're looking for outcomes. They're not just looking to be influenced. They're looking for someone to come with an off-the-shelf package that says, right, if you do X, Y will happen. And it's about the degree to which you think your research is able to uh, uh, deliver that. And I think um, 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 one of the key questions to ask is if, if your research doesn't lead to a behaviour change or some kind of outcome, then actually, you know, why should local government or any other public body be thinking about it? So it is really about thinking what's the outcome that comes out of it. And I think the final bit is thinking about sort of the little issues. And sort of the big, sorting out the little issues and the big issues will follow. And I think it's a combination of the last two points. I think the impression in local government is that academics won't get out of bed unless there's a big project, something meaty and social. There's some great examples, things in particular in Westminster in terms of family recovery, looking at the way in which uh, key families are uh, interacting with the state, problem families, pro uh, families with problems, uh, and how in which uh, sort of public services can work together to do that. That's a big, meaty, weighty issue that uh, academia and local government can get into. But actually, 
Most decisions are based on a chap like me standing up in front of the key decision makers and trying to make sense over lots of little decisions, which actually probably have quite a big impact in the way. But one of the key things is to try and think about the way in which the research, and I like the way in which not just putting things on blogs, but actually contacting decision makers and saying, right, this is relevant, I think this is relevant, why, why you should be doing this. And so for me, I don't think it's that sort of academia is sort of knocking at a closed door. I think it's sort of the head of research at Westminster Council. I can't quite tell if people are knocking at that door or not. And I think that's really what I want to understand. So in terms of um, um, just summing up, what I would hope in terms of my confidence in in telling you these uh, three messages, and hopefully they're being the right one, is that... Yeah, at the very minimum, you know, you all live in you know, local areas. Go and think about your own research. Go to your local council and think, can I make a difference? Is what I'm doing, if this can make a difference in my local community, and if you can prove that it leads to an outcome, that something actually happens, then there's hundreds of local authorities out there who would be really interested uh, in listening in terms of the evidence uh, that you're able to present in terms of delivering that outcome. Brilliant. And you've all done fantastically well on timing. Uh, so we've got really quite an extended period uh, for questions, answers, discussion, debate, etc. There are some roving mics. Are excellent. Indication of roving mics. So who wants to go first? Yes. You would say who you are. You might take them in a bit of a clump. So um, um, good afternoon. My name is Enrique Mendizabal. Um, I'll pitch my which is my blog. I write a blog called On Think Tanks, um, and I used to head the uh, research and policy and development program at o- the Overseas Development Institute until about last year, which looks at the links between research and policy. Uh, so quite a lot of what, uh, has been said is very relevant to this, this work, um, and I have quite a long list of things, but I'll blog about them. But I want to point out a couple <laughs> of things that I think are important. First, I think that there's a difference between what I think this group and the previous panel thinks of impact I think the previous panel was talking about impact in terms of visibility. Um, this panel is talking about decisions. And we did try this in ODI um, when we were looking at the role research played in DFID. And instead of looking at imp- uh, visibility, we actually took the lead from policymakers and said, ask them how they make decisions, and then out of that looked at the role research played. And I think that would be an interesting contribution to the way the research is being done. Second is I think that we're talking about markets but forgetting that they're far more complex than just demand from government, supply from academia, and intermediaries. Because there is research, so there is supply from government as well. And there are think tanks, civil society organizations, lobbies, the private sector. The media itself does a lot of research. So we need to think about this in less simpler terms and not be worried that we might not explain it at all. And then just one, one final, final point. So I work with a lot of academics in developing countries. My focus is mostly developing countries. And I think that although it's okay for academia to be communicating more and, and, mm. and trying to get to policy, we must not forget that this is not something you can do as well as do research. And often the kind of research that is required to have substantive influence demands us to focus on the research. Well, maybe others who are better at translating, better at communicating, are the ones who should be calling to do a lot of that communication work, uh, dissemination work, etc. So I think there is a danger of trying to get everybody to do everything. Without good research, you're not going to have anything to blog about. You're not going to have think tanks to maybe bring policy and and research together. You're not going to have advisors in government, etc. So I think we need to make sure that all these different players are strong enough, including the media, private sector, 
And if they're all strong enough, they'll be able to work together and, and bridge those communities. Okay, well, that's quite a lot of questions. So, uh, so let's take that as a clump. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to comment on, on some of these? So I think some quite interesting comments there about the difference in perspective, but also who's best placed to intermediate between uh, pure research and whatever. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, 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 I agree, obviously, that people should you know, uh, um, pursue to the extent possible their comparative advantage, and some people are better at doing pure. Certainly, it's true in my institution. Um, some people are doing better at doing pure research. Some people are better at communicating the results of that research and some, some people in between. Um, I do think uh, uh, um, that the focus on the influence on decisions rather than simply visibility is, is very important. And simply you know, getting a, a mention in the press is, does not mean you have impact. Um, and there, coming back to what I said before, I, I think that the, the, the role of the media is very important, and actually one thing that the academic community could use, and research community could usefully do more is, is to try and educate uh, is try and educate the media uh, to the extent possible. I am continually astonished by the uh, sort of the, the, the extent to which even the quality press in this country, uh, um, even people who are supposed to be specialists in the area on which they are reporting, get the sort of basic uh, basic stuff wrong. Um, so, for example, the Economist a couple of weeks ago talking about the work experience program simply got its facts wrong, despite the fact that the you know uh, uh, um, I and several other commentators said publicly what the facts were. Um, and there's really you know th- there's not really an excuse for that, uh, but uh, the the media is quite important in terms because you know as well as communicating directly with policymakers and politicians, you know, those people get much of their, uh, um, both their information and their incentives mediated through the media. Um, and if you want to actually have a, an impact in terms of decisions as well as visibility, uh, you need to be able to work with, with the media. So Bernard, what surprised you coming from academia into government about what's different? What yes, that's a very interesting question. Um, yeah, because I spent, well much more civilised in government academia. People behave much better. <laughs> but then I was the head of an Oxford college, so maybe that wasn't a typical experience. Um, I, 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 think, I think there's actually... And I can't remember who I heard say this the other day, so this is not original to me, but it was a very interesting point. There is a genuine epistemological difference between the way that academics think about research and the way it's thought about in government. And it's a, because you're try, because it, it's this that if, when you're doing when you're doing ordinary research in university, your job is especially as a scientist, it's almost to cast doubt. It's to say that's something we need to think about a bit more, and um, and and so you're always asking more and more questions. And I always used to say to my students, you know, a good piece of research might answer one question, but will ask a lot more. Whereas in government, the question is, do we do this or do we do that? And it has to be answered very, very quickly. And, um, and this is actually something that you, you touched on in your first point over there. And so, um, in a way, the caricature of, here's my policy, now find some evidence, isn't fair. Because what you're actually trying to say is, we're going to have to make a decision about this. And so let's find the evidence that will help us do that. And of course people will have preconceptions and so on. But I think the biggest difference to me is in, indeed the way in which 
the way in which the the policy is here and now, and we have to do it on the basis of whatever evidence there is, plus whatever preconceptions and ideas people might have. Whereas, um, as, a, as an ordinary academic, you've got a lot more time, and you really want to do a really good job, and you want to do the best job. And so the real question is, how do we join up all that really deep knowledge that people have? And then you get to the question of, what do we do absolutely now? Okay, let's take a couple more questions, see if there's more. Yes, there and then there. Uh, Shirley, as social commentator, campaign for social um, science, and I have read Nudge, and I have debated with the authors. Um, <laughs> possibly one of the few. But I would actually like to pick up on Neil's point, because that certainly I work across the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors, a sense that academics are only interested in the big research prestige projects, uh, but they could actually have a lot of impact at a local level. Uh, and I'd be interest for, interested to hear from academics how they feel about Neil's statement, which I will, of course, be tweeting out, because I think it's, it's an interesting one. That might have to wait for the next panel, I think, and be passed on to the academics' strike back, which is after the first tea break. Yes. Hello, I'm Annabelle South from the Medical Research Council Clinical Trials Unit. Um, I'm wondering what the panel think about how much their policy is influenced by things like the media and social media, and how much is that a good thing compared to should, should policy be based on systematic reviews and meta-analysis like the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence? So what's the balance in your experience? Guess any one more? Anyone? The key at the front. I mean, I just wanted to... Um, Mike, then you can be heard straight. A brief factual question, just to hear a little bit more about the advisory committees of the Home Office. I yep. just wondered how the membership is constituted, um, whether it's a, an, an open process, but all this kind of slightly you know, who you know, and mm -hmm. um, what kinds of, of things you, you expect the, the advisory committees to do. Just mm -hmm. to hear a bit more about them. Should we take that one first? Because actually, when the question I was going to ask was whether you found it harder to recruit to the advisory committees after the uh, little local difficulty with Professor Nutt and friends, um, and actually what commitment you made to, the, made to the people on them about the way in which you use their advice. So maybe we just pick that one up, and then we'll go to the question about media and social media. Right. I was not... I started in my job on the 15th of March 2010, and no which was memory. a long time after <laughs> Professor Nutt's um, departure. And furthermore, I was interviewed about three times my job on the subject of Professor... <laughs> is David here? Um, the subject of David Nutt was high on the agenda. Um, it is absolutely not the case that the ACMD's advice is not taken. There have only been two examples in 40 years when the ACMD's advice was not accepted, and one of them was around this issue of whether cannabis should be classified at B or C, and, um, and actually even that was a pretty split decision on the committee. So, um, um, and some of the other committees. Now, we absolutely do we... Um, uh, do we appoint by open process? Um, some of our committees are NDPBs, non-departmental public bodies, mm -hmm. which means that um, 
you have to go through a very, very complicated process to appoint. You advertise, you have interviews, you have um, assessors who sit on interview panels and so on, so on, so on. So it's, as if, it's, as, it's the same as appointing someone to a job. Um, some committees are not quite as bureaucratically appointed as that, but the, the principle is absolutely that we... There's, there's two ways on which we, we appoint. One is that we advertise... And the other is that some of our committees have places which are nominated by other bodies. So, for example, um, the um, Home Office Scientific Advisory Committee, which is an overarching committee, has members who are nominated by, say, the Royal Society, the British Academy, and so on. And um, and so there, and we have and so either it's external bodies nominating or it's. Um, uh, or it's by open process. There's absolutely no appointments which are who you know. You tend to get to know them afterwards. It, it, it's a good question, and it's just not, it's not the case. Nor, nor was my job filled that way. I, I was, it was very competitive. Now, as for um, what we expect them to do, um, we genuinely would like people to address the issues at hand and give their advice. It has to be understood at the end of the day that... You know, advisors advise, ministers decide. But the number of occasions on which advisory committee's advice hasn't been taken is very, very small. I can think of one other example, but we've worked on very carefully a protocol. I mean, you may be able to contradict me. We've worked on a protocol for the ACMD where the... um, what, which says what has to happen if the minister is not minded to accept the advice. And that's, I'm quite pleased with that. And it's that the minister has to actually explain to the committee what it was that, that he or she didn't accept. And do they have to explain in public? I mean, is this a public yes, it's exchange? Done, well, it's not, it's not in public, but the exchanges are published. Public. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. So, but as I say, since it hasn't happened since the protocol has been put no. in place... Um, I, yes, I, 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 yes I, I don't think it's an issue. But, um, no, we haven't found it difficult to get people. We, in fact, given the process you have to go through, when a lot of applications land on your desk and you have to deal with them the way that they do, and having dealt with academic appointments for many years, the process is extremely rigorous, I can say. Yeah. But I know someone like DEF is always very keen to get women on its scientific advisory committee, so if you're at all interested there, I think it would be... Quite a lot of demand. Jonathan wants to come in very quickly uh, to be slightly cynical. I would just point out that while there is a rigorous Office of Commission for Public Appointment process, there's still ministerial approval at the end of the day. Um, I, I, yes. I did an interview earlier this week for uh, an advisory yes, committee, is, uh, um, which uh, I won't name. I don't have any reason to believe that actually that one will there'll be any politics in it, but still Secretary of State uh, will sign it off. And uh, um, yes. I would be s- slightly surprised if Home Office Ministers did not take a keen interest in, for example, the views as well as the qualifications uh, um, and research capacity of, uh, of members of, for example, the Migration Advisory Committee. Um, I'd also point out on the subject of the map which is an excellent committee, done some really good work, and, and the, whose members are absolutely first rate, that they are nonetheless constrained, as they've made you know, implicitly quite clear, by the fact that they have to work within the constraint of a policy framework, which is clearly bonkers, and which is generally recognized by economists as being bonkers. So their recommendations are effectively 
you have set this absurd policy goal, this is the least damaging way of achieve, least damaging way we can think of achieving it. Um, and it's a hell of a lot better that it should be done that way than the alternative of just ministers deciding what the best way of achieving a bonkers goal is. But it doesn't mean that, that immigration policy is evidence-based. It's not. The, implement, the current immigration policy we have is not evidence-based, just because we've got a very good, very expert migration advisory committee. We have a crazy policy which is being implemented in where the mechanism designs are pretty rigorously evidence-based. But that's not the same thing as saying that policy overall is evidence-based. Now, come back on that yes, I will. <laughs> I'll point out I'm something which is, which is a, a publicly um, available fact, which is that the MAC is the only advisory committee in the Home Office which isn't part of Home Office Science. <laughs> so in other words, um, for organisational reasons which long predate me, the MAC isn't one of the committees that I have anything to do with managing, whereas I do all the others. And so everything I said was about all the committees that I know about. And the MAC, all I know about is that I read its reports the same as John. I think the, I think the MAC debate can probably go on up. I want to come to this question about media and social media, which actually is not irrelevant to where we got no. to this sort of immigration policy that we have. But just to ask Adam, you know, DEC is, no, DEC stuff is quite public at the moment. You've had your little local run-in on feed-in tariffs and renewables and wind farms, stuff like that. So actually, what do you think the balance is when you're there making the case for uh, social science against the comms director sitting there? Now, you don't actually have one at the deck at the moment, but your head of news at deck and whatever going in saying, actually, this is what people are fussed about, or your spads lurking in, your special advisors coming in. How do you think that all fits into decision-making? Well, I mean, it's I don't think it's a secret that the sort of you know, the big issues of the day are the things that control the conversation. Um, but I suppose the, the point is to try and to try and get ministers to think more more broadly about the issue if that's possible. Um, and it, it kind of picks up the point in the other way at the beginning around you know taking social science evidence and sort of suggesting well okay the big issue might be this but there are other other wider issues that the research um, may, may suggest and, and try and feed that advice in. I guess part of the issue is really is around is, you know, those, those big media storms aren't happening all the time in all policy. So it's as often as well to try and uh, work whilst mm. the uh, weather is calm. Mm. Uh, in those kind of situations. What about local level, Yeah, I mean, we've had our fair share of controversies in um, um, Westminster, often based on um, um, us sticking quite strongly to some of the research evidence. And a um, 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 recent example would be parking. Um, where a lot of our uh, um, very strong research evidence over, over a, a good year or so was in some respects knocked out by a very dodgy piece of research which was commissioned for a private company. So there's, there's, it, but the key point was they were better in terms of actually articulating the argument and, and, and winning the debate in terms of the, in terms of the uh, press and, and the media. So I think uh, it, 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 it's, it's intrinsic on us. I, I suppose the point I really want to make in terms of media is it's not just in terms of sort of what public opinion is saying. It's the way in which sort of the mood is generated for the decision makers. So they may not be thinking about the stuff that's in the media, but it's about sort of um, um, picking up the recurrent themes from a number of different sources. That's sort of the way why I picked up on nudge, because it's kind of something which a decision maker will sort of hear from various different bits and pieces and sort of say, well, OK, well, I need to get some of this. And I think, again, you can idea something like, um, and I mentioned family recovery. Again, it's something which is a recurrent thing which can bring together lots of bits of research. And for local government, 
we're very much focused on, um, 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 I think, the big ideas in many respects, but it is kind of um, how those sort of individual bits of research, those individual bits of knowledge, the little case studies fit into the grander things of sort of what local government's doing in 2012. So we're dealing with budget cuts, we're dealing with things in terms of commissioning uh, outcomes. So anything that fits into that framework is great. Anything outside that framework is a bit odd, a bit different. We, we, we can't quite... And I think there's, that's where the, the language needs to pull together. And whether that then translates into media and social media... Mm-hmm then all the better. If it becomes a sort of public consciousness, uh, then great. But um, it, it's creating that overall mood that I think is sort of needed to, to embed research into decision-making process. Because I think some of the things we've discussed in particular seems to suggest like it all comes down to sort of personal meeting or, 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 you know, this person has quoted this one piece of research. I think it has to be sort of more intrinsic so that all decisions are based on, on, on sort of a collective soaking up of, of, of good quality research across the piece. Well, we, we had a session here uh, a few weeks ago called Policy by Twitter. One of the things oh. people were saying there they saw as a benefit of social media was actually to open up a whole range of academia to people who wouldn't normally ever consume, didn't subscribe to any journals, were sitting behind mm-hmm. a firewall, the paywall, so would never probably buy things. We didn't, you know, very easy to access academia. We do it through our interns here. Um, do you actually follow people or follow topics to actually you know, yeah, find I mean, out what's I, going on out there? And, 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 and I recommend you all follow me. I think the, the name's in the back. <laughs> and there's a, I suppose there's a key thing in terms of love government and government in general, in terms of whether individuals are able to tweet themselves, are able to sort of put their head above the parapet in terms of social media. Certainly I'm, uh, I'm having our special permission uh, to tweet uh, in terms of market research and, and, and research issues have, have, have done so. Because in many respects it's giving up some of your identity. If you're then saying, well, actually I'm a spokesperson, I'm someone who's dealing with research in terms of... Um, 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 but there's a vi- very vibrant community. But what I would say is then, of course, that limits the pool of the people who are doing it. So there are key individuals that I know who are doing it, but there's a lot of other people who aren't. But what you do sometimes find, again, is this kind of collective mood that sort of the same ideas will start filtering their way through. And I think, yes, it does start to influence policy and it does start to influence decisions. Okay, let's have a few more questions. We've got a question there. Enrique, I'll keep you until other people have had a go and there's a sort of cropping out at the back. Uh, yes. Steve Johnson from the University of Hull um, we heard a very interesting presentation earlier which was talking about the things that academics do what I didn't hear unless I'm mistaken is that academics um, train the next generation of social researchers who are involved in that now, I'd be interested in the panel's view really based on I promise not to go on but very briefly I did a very interesting case study of social scientists within the Welsh what was then the Welsh Assembly Government what is now the Welsh um, government, which sort of suggested actually maybe that um, the training of PhD social scientists who end up going into non-academic posts could be improved, basically, and could be improved in a way that would help them to work with external academics to improve the policy um, making process. So I, I, I wonder about that. Just a very final point on the basis of that, of course, is that uh, we are a devolved um, government in the, in the UK. We've got UK government here. We've got local authorities here. So, I mean, it would be interesting, although I've looked at the list, it would be interesting to see whether there are any differences between UK government agencies and devolved administrations. Thank you. Yes, you might have to get you onto the stage to answer your own question there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Madeleine Hatfield from the Royal Geographical Society with the Institute of British Geographers. I wonder if you have any advice for those academics who perhaps don't already have the contacts with government who might not be able to persuade people in policy to read their blog or follow them on Twitter, how they attract that attention in a positive way rather than perhaps stalking people, um, <laughs> <laughs> bombarding them with messages, for example. So in the, in the kind of new um, ways in which we're encouraged to communicate, how do we make those initial contacts? Thank you. Okay, and just one further along. Yeah. Genevieve Knight from the Policy Studies Institute. It's a question for Jonathan Portis, who uh, mentioned that uh, the Leia Equal Japanese group were quite influential, but why were they influential? Was it just because their ears opened up in the government, or because they actually had something to say and communicated it well, or something else? Adam, would you like to pick up this point about you know training sort of people? Uh, you know, you see the policymakers in action or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly something that I've been thinking about in terms of what we might do in the, in the next phase, because it's quite clear that the, not only is there a huge array of, of PhD research going on out there, which we could uh, um, work with and, and uh, develop um, in relation to what you know, DEX initiatives are, for example, but also just that, that direct knowledge and, and sort of experience and expertise of working with policy and, and, and try to develop a lot more case studentships, uh, internships, a lot more, a lot more exchange, a lot more sort of uh, flow between the two. I think that's, I think that's certainly where the future lies. And do you think? What about the sort of people who come in to you know policy making, not necessarily having spent time doing a PhD? What about those people? And do you think there's more that can be done to make them better consumers of research? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's. I mean, that's that's pretty good. It's uh, lots of training opportunities, and they're doing work at the Open University, which I think is a, mm. is probably a, a good sort of resource to try and. It's, you know, skilling up internally across the board to a certain level, having specialists like myself, you know, in an intermediate post, bringing the, the academics sort of towards us um, by having, you know, it's basically creating a much smoother gradient uh, between the academics or sector and the, and the, and the policy making sector. And, and the smoother that, that gradient is, the easier the information will flow, I guess. Brad, have you got any views on training of these? Um, yeah, well, actually, I'd like to pick up the, the question on advice for academics who don't have a profile. That's excellent. excellent. <laughs> um, and um, was it Madeline? That? Yes. Yes, that's right. So, so I think that um, learned societies like yours have a great deal, have a really important part to play um, in this because um, a learned society can give a route in for someone who isn't known in government because the society itself can broker um, policy engagement. And so I, I hope we won't forget the, the role that societies can play um, because I think that's really important. That's, one, that's a completely different way in. But it might well... And, that's, actually, and that comes back to what I was saying about how we often ask learned societies to nominate members to our committees. But more than that, a learned society can... Um, could organise a forum, could work with government department and so on. And if your society is interested in doing any of that with me, uh, if we can find a suitable thing, I'd be very interested in that. Jonathan, there was a question directed specifically yeah. at you. Genevieve. Um, uh, why was the uh, uh, um, Layard Nickel Jackman stuff so influential? I think partly because... Um, the, uh, the research itself was, uh, was convincing and comprehensible... Um, it fitted, uh, um, I mean, it did go with the ideological grain at the time as well, which is important. I think if it had gone completely the other direction, it would have had less purchase. 
Um, but it was, it was uh, clear what they were doing, and uh, it made sense. People understood it. Policymakers understood it. And it helped set a new agenda, both in terms of policy and research. And, of course, a lot of the sort of follow-up research and evaluation was indeed done by you and your colleagues at PSI, as you know well. And I, but I think that the layer nickel jackman analyses have teed up that, 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 uh, that policy agenda. Just briefly on the how do you get yourself noticed, um, I do think the barriers to entry are much small, much lower than they used to be. As a, and this is one of the great things about blogs. I mean, um, I see Paul Krugman regularly citing and referencing uh, um, my uh, colleague uh, Chris Dillo, who writes a blog called Stumbling and Mumbling uh, about uh, um, economics. Now, Chris is just a uh, you know a journalist on the Investors Chronicle um, who happens to write a very good economics blog in his spare time because he has interesting things to say which the Investors Chronicle won't let him say. But it's sufficiently interesting that Paul Krugerman, who has a Nobel Prize and is a professor at Princeton, uh, reads it and, and references it. And as a consequence, Chris is now far more influential in some sense than he was three or four years ago. Um, so I think if you have something good, interesting, and compelling to say, keep on plugging it away, and actually the barriers are much lower than they used to be. Neil, do you want to pick up that point? Yeah, I was just saying that last point. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't object to people being pushy. I think there's so few... This is the thing. We're all very timid and sort of, oh, we must, yeah. we must put something online British, and just sort of hope, hope that someone discovers it. There's nothing more dispiriting than doing a fantastic piece of research, putting it on a blog or something, tweeting, and then no-one retweets it. And you go, well, didn't you sit... And so, so I would, you know, just generally encourage being pushy, but not just in terms of um, 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 online, but actually in real life as well. I'd say there'd be no problem in terms of finding... Out who particular individuals are in organisations, chasing them up, trying to find them at conferences, stalking them in whatever way. Um, um, the worst they could do is say, go away. So, you know, stalking I is about to be made an offence, we're told by So Research stalking. But I think, I think one of the points, though, is, to, is Jonathan's one about going with the grain. If you can see people who are interested in your area and are likely to find your thing really helpful, then they will be very welcoming. Uh, if you're trying to push at a very shut door, then that might not be very productive for either of you. Anyway, let's go around for some more questions. I promise Patrick I will let him ask a question. There, and then over there. Hi, thank you. Uh, Hugh Davis from the University of St. Andrews. Uh, we started off by talking about a market metaphor for exchanging research-based information with the idea of um, supply and demand. And we've kind of continued that by talking about consumers of research, barriers to entry, and so on. Uh, but we know, we know that markets fail when the consumer is unable to judge the quality of what they receive. Um, and I'm really concerned the way this debate has, has, uh, has run on, that uh, quality is very much in the eye of the beholder, the recipient of that information. Um, so some of the things that have been expressed have been about a competent pitch, uh, clear statements that if you do X, you're going to get Y, uh, proven links to outcomes, and so on. So the, the criterion that's been applied is, is this information useful to me in advancing my own policy position, rather than is this information actually, uh, to use some good old-fashioned words, valid, reliable, rigorously uh, created, and so on. And so I'd like the panel to kind of address that issue about uh, are, are they knowledgeable and, uh, and informed consumers of the research-based information? I think actually it's a really interesting question. Let's, let's just hold on them. Do you like to comment on, on that? Are we sort of I, I, missing the quality dimension? No, 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 no. no. I, I think quality, and I think that it, it is deeply frustrating. It's deeply frustrating from a very technical market research point of view. 
in terms of there's quality surveys and there are non-quality surveys and actually a lot of local government procurement is equivalent to sort of procuring a nice set of chairs or tables. You know, it's sort of like we've got a thousand interviews here, a thousand interviews there, this is half the price, let's go for that. So there, there's, there's, there's the, and I suppose the problem is that there are some local authorities who will follow that basis. There's others who will have a higher quality threshold. And I would hope Westminster does. Um, and, and, but I think, the, the, again, the key point is in terms of if, if that's the perceived problem, then it's the job of the research community to actually educate people on what the quality threshold is and actually you know, holding events and, and explaining what quality really means at the end of the day, I think, is, is the only way forward to doing that. I would take challenge in terms of sort of saying, is it, am I, you know, is, is it just you know, pitching and sort of saying we're supporting your policies? Of course, in a very sort of civil service way, you know, what it should be is it should be sort of working together so people do feel that you know, the research is back in their decision. But actually, the, the, the heart of it is that we have done quality research and we can, you know, um, hand on heart say what we're saying is correct and we're not misleading the situation. And I suppose the challenge is to perhaps um, um, present the degree of risk just rather than sort of saying, look, it's inconclusive, to sort of say, well, we think this is the best chance, you know, in our expert opinion, this is going to probably work, but, you know, you've got a 60-40 chance, you know, or, or it was more definite. I think that's the bit which is probably more challenging um, to try and get across, but we can get to that, than, than, than hopefully we could square both sides there. So, Jonathan, just convenient um, truths? Or? I mean, I agree with Neil uh, um, almost entirely, and I think, you know, Neil didn't say that, you know, policymakers want the answer, the answer that they started out from. He said that, but quite rightly, they do prefer to get an answer. Um, um, and I think most policymakers actually are more irritated by uh, um, researchers who come and say, well, I'm not sure, sitting on the fence, but more research definitely needed uh, than they are by a researcher who comes along and say, I'm sorry, but your policy is crap um, and it's a waste <laughs> of money. Uh, they, may, they, they will then have to take a decision, do I want to go ahead with this stupid policy for political reasons? You know, parking is a good example, perhaps, where maybe the research is one way and the policy is another. Uh, but that's, that's what they're paid for, and they know that. So they, they can live with that. What they don't like is spending money or time or whatever and, and not feeling they've got anything useful information out of it. I don't have yeah. anything to add to that. I think this is really, it's a really important issue. It's worthwhile remembering that there's really 2,000 social science specialists, if not more, statisticians, etc. Very highly qualified people in government who are generally, not always, but most of the time, doing procurement of research. So we are, we are hopefully fairly intelligent consumers of research. And we do try to push the the quality of not just you know, um, in, the, in the private sector, but within, within the uh, academic setting, because quality has a different meaning there. You've got you know, quality in terms of the private <coughs> So there is a debate to be had about what we mean by quality, but certainly in the sort of classic academic sense, we're there trying to sort of wave the flag and, and push up standards. Okay, let's do one last round of questions. We've got, sorry, Helena, I've put you on hold before, so over there. Mike lurking. And if anyone else, this is going to be your last chance in this segment. Okay, so Helena Djokovic from the Political Studies Association. So on that issue of the important um, role of learned societies to help engagement, I mean, I think we're very aware of that. Um, but it is, it, it is the difficulty we have, one of actually understanding all the research that's going on within our discipline. Um, so where there's a specific inquiry... We may look and say, oh, yes, you know, we know so-and-so is doing research in that field, and we try and put them forward, encourage them to perhaps engage where it's a parliamentary inquiry or such. 
Um, but actually when it's the other way around and you're not talking about a specific piece of work being done but knowing how we should actually um, look at all the research I invite academics to actually categorise their work and say this is relevant to which field you know? um, that's, that becomes more difficult because for example I went to our conference one of our conferences where there's a lot of work on youth engagement um, that wasn't by well known academics but it was interesting and it was relevant and in that case one could say okay that's about youth engagement how interested young people are in politics and the areas they're engaging in but there's such a vast wave of work, and how do you actually, can, can we work with departments to say, what are you looking for? And then we can go out and very specifically ask people what work they're doing and where, whether it's relevant. Okay, any more questions? Yes, there. Mark Holmes from the Department for Business Innovation Skills. Um, I was interested to hear the, um, uh, the idea of Adam's role and the... Um, the mode of engagement that it's designed to enable between um, government and academia. Um, it, and several of the panel referred to the fact that policymakers generally want an answer to a question quickly, and logically, it must be quicker if you can put the policymaker in touch with an academic who has already answered that question or something like it. Um, I wondered how the money worked, because the model you talked about sounded unlike government commissioning a piece of research and then paying for it. Um, if, as Jill was intimating in her question, what you end up with is commissioning less research because it's already being done, does, do we end up with government becoming more reliant on central funding of research through the research councils and QR and so on, and less and, and even smaller departmental research budgets? Okay, any... No... Um... Last question. Hi, Richard Watermere, Cardiff University. Um, <clears throat> very interested in terms of strategies forward, in terms of how do we readdress the epistemological gap that was mentioned earlier on, uh, and, and what strategies would the panel recommend for academics talking constructively yet critically to power, um, and how do we avoid the risk, I suppose, of research becoming overtly instrumentalised? Okay, well, I think there's three sort of questions that are all sort of lurking in the same space of how actually do you achieve in a sort of effective engagement and what are the consequences of it. Adam, do you want to have first pitch at that yeah. sort of nexus of questions? There? Um, if I could, yeah, I'll try and blend those two, um, first two questions together at least. I mean, I guess the nature of my role makes that, I suppose, stand out the parliament in terms of the kind of engagement that you're talking about. I'm going around advertising myself amongst the, amongst the community to say, you know, if you don't know who to talk to, Talk to me, um, and, and then I'll find out, sort of thing. Because I probably I'm not the, the, the one stop shop on the one start shop um, quite often, um, and, and trying to sort of put people having the right conversations at the right time with the right kind of language, if you like, is is it's part of my part of my role. It's and it, but it's also it's thinking creative. It's not just about sort of a kind of common role in a sense. It's not the number of communication specialism, but it's very much a kind of science role, but in a creative sense to think about. You know, there are you know, there's low research outside of energy, which, which isn't uh, directly on energy, but it's very useful for us, and how can we get those conversations going? In regard to the, to the sort of money question that you, that you asked before, um, I think there's always going to be a need for government to do stuff, um, big stuff, and right now, um, academic is, sector is really good at sort of saying, well, you know, what do we know right now, and how can we sort of use that in, in, in a very, very short term? 
and they're also really good at strategic cross-cutting, this stuff that goes right across our, our disciplinary boundaries or the departmental boundaries. Um, but there's always going to be a sort of area for government research, I think. Um, so in that respect, it's, it's really about finding the scope um, where the two sort of areas um, you know, find their best fit, I suppose, one way. Oh, all I was going to say is in terms of um, um, commissioning less research, um, and, and I think what's, what's interesting for me is in terms of the number of local authorities who sort of commission the same research individually. I mean, in London, we've got about 33 London boroughs. Well, we have got 33 London boroughs. Um, and we work together occasionally, but of course, because we're all doing different things, it's all democracy and, and, and the like, uh, we don't you know, engage. What's interesting with Westminster is we're now doing more work in terms of something called Tri-Borough, where we're merging a lot of back-office functions with Hampton, Fulham and Kensington and Chelsea. And that's really sort of freeing up a lot of the resource for us to sort of think, well, rather than doing things individually, let's see if we can collectively do um, some research. And I wouldn't say, um, 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 that, you know, not commissioned research, but sort of building on the research from before. Because often when you're making very quick decisions, what you're doing is starting with a blank sheet and, and perhaps not doing the desk research and not going in, into too much depth and those kind of things. You're sort of reinventing the wheel each time. But I think if you get the resource up and sort of the reward from doing sort of big research projects and, and, and looking at big themes then um, you know, you, you're doing new research as opposed to just spending a small amount of money repeating something that someone did two years ago. Yeah, Jonathan Burrett, do you want to come in on this question of strategies for academics approaching power? I know you've um, never really been an academic, Jonathan Burrett. Uh, you are now. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think in terms of, of, of clearly research budgets for direct commissioning of research are going to come down. Um, it seems to me that the, uh, the opportunity both for academics and government to, to leverage what we do is primarily going to come through the use, uh, at least on the empirical side, through the use of some of these much bigger, more uh, uh, richer, um, more interesting data sets. Um, and there's a potential both for, for academics to pro, for governments to do, get things done more cheaply mm-hmm. and for academics to proactively approach government and say, actually, we could do some stuff that would be really interesting and novel from a research point of view um, and useful to you um, much more cheaply and more efficiently than could have been done five or mm-hmm. ten years ago. And, and how you set up the structures to enable that to happen, I, think, I don't think government is quite answered yet, but I think uh, there are various ideas floating around of the sort that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, Last word. Yes. I think um, w- one thing always amused me when we talk about money is that um, we, universities have been encouraged to behave like businesses for the last 30 or so years, most of my research career, and then people are surprised when they behave like businesses and say, <laughs> well, we want to be paid for what you're going to ask us to do. Um, and my hope is that the impact... Um, part of the REF will actually allow, will, will align the pure curiosity side of academics' work with their business-like approach and um, get them to think, of, get them to choose to think about things which have um, useful impact more widely. But the, I think I want to get back to the Political Studies Association question, um, which was, um, it, it's, some, it, it's really not about... I have a question that I'd like an answer to. It's more that there's a, there's a sort of area out there and I feel that we might be able to talk to one another about ways in which things going in and on in this discipline might be helpful for something that we're doing. I can think of examples within the physical life sciences at the moment. For example, we had a, a workshop um, 
which BBSRC helped us with about a year ago, which was about new genomic methods and forensics. And so there was no prior agenda for that, but we, the idea was we got, we got the players in the forensic science market, we got some people who knew about modern genomics, and we got them together. Um, it was to some extent a dialogue of the deaf, but it wasn't wholly, and I hope that that sort of way interesting things go on. And, um, and so part of the job of a chief scientific advisor is to be the bridge between different worlds. And so, any, as I say, any learned society that thinks they might have something interesting, um, come and talk to them. There are all sorts of rather informal, simple modes of engagement, which could well lead on to interesting things later. Okay, well, that's, I think, given a lot of food for thought, and I think some really interesting issues for the sessions to come.